0: Tonight, I to, I have the privilege of introducing our speaker. Our speaker is here tonight, and it's, she's here speaking. And, and it's, she is not who she is because she likes sweet tea. It helps. She's not who she is because she has such an engaging personality and a really fun little southern accent. She is not who she is because she's married to the chairman of the pastoral training at Faith Baptist Bible College, although that probably helps. And it's not even because she's a beekeeper's wife. And it's not because she has four wonderful adult children. And it's not because she was a pastor's wife for 25 years. It it helped to shape her, but it's not be, who she is. That's not why she is who she is. All of these have contributed to the shaping who she is. We all have events in our life that do not equate to who we are it doesn't um equate to our identity it helps shape us all of us through all all these over 600 women we all have events in our life but it doesn't equate to our identity this evening our speaker is god's mouthpiece she has a servant's heart she is going to be heralding his his word to us to help us understand who our identity is in and that it is in the Lord Jesus Christ. Faith Taylor, you are our... My husband has told me many times to, to young men that they are God's man for the hour. You are God's woman for our hour. Speak to our hearts. It's, use, um, use the word of God and speak to our hearts, okay? Thank you, Faith.
1: I truly feel the responsibility of that. Um, someone asked me before this started if I get nervous, and I responded that I actually get more nervous to sing solos than I do to speak. I just... Love to talk, you know. Um, but I feel the weight of responsibility of doing something like this. Um, I want to accurately reflect the Word of God to you. And I want to share out of what God has been challenging my own heart with, um, what the committee's burden has been for this retreat. And I've been praying and studying for this a lot. Um, I was telling another friend I've observed my husband's studying method for years, and we all do it a little differently, you know, and I'm a type A personality, so I I have to turn over every single existing rock, you know, and study every little nuance, and then I have to whittle it all back down to 45 minutes, you know, so I think I started with 25 pages for this message. So you're sitting closely enough to each other that you should be able to just prop each other up without (laughs) anything observable, right? No, really, I worked really hard. Hey, you. Hey, Becky. She was one of my students last year, and I miss her. Anyway, um, (laughs) I worked really hard to whittle it down, so we'll see how that goes, okay? Isn't this beautiful? My husband is the head of the men's ministry at our church, and They had this breakfast last year, and I said, well, can I do centerpieces? And he's like, no. (laughs) I said, please, I'll keep it really simple. He's like, all right. So I come in there and do my centerpieces, and all the men had the same response as he did. What is that? You know? (laughs) We just have to have it nice. Don't you love the sparkly lights and the lanterns? I've been looking at that all night, a little distracted. But... It's really pretty. It's good to be back with you. I, um, I left here two years ago after being in Iowa for one year, and I still hadn't, I didn't, I didn't feel like an Iowan yet. Actually, I still don't, but <laughs> I, felt, I felt less like one then. <clears throat> and after coming here and being with y'all, I just was so encouraged. I went home and said my, to my husband, I feel like I've connected with Iowa. You know, the Iowa women. So thank you for having me back, whoever's decision that was. Um, The rest of you are stuck with it. Um, But I'm excited about what God has laid on my heart tonight. And so I'm just going to pray and jump right in. Uh, Remember, it was 25 pages, so we'll see how that goes. Thank you, Father, for this time in your word. Um, Be magnified. Be glorified. Pray that you control my thoughts, and my words, and that your spirit would take the word of God and do the work of God in the women of God. In your name we pray, amen. One of my favorite things about Labor Day week, besides Renew Conference, of course, um, is the U.S. Open tennis match tournament. Anybody a tennis person? Three of us? Okay. Um, It is held in New York City last week and this week, every year. It is one of the four Grand Slam tournaments in the world, and it is known to be one of, one of the best, um, a great, great courts, great place, great people, and I, I, should I say I try to play tennis? I am not a great tennis player, but I do enjoy playing tennis. And so I enjoy watching, particularly the women play. I don't get too excited about Federer and Nadal and Djokovic and all them. But I enjoy watching the women. And I have been following the Williams sisters for about 15 years. (laughs) Venus and Serena, thank you for that second, third tennis player. Okay. Um, These are two African-American sisters who, according to what I've read, actually were born and grew up in their early years in kind of a gang area, and their father recognized some athletic ability in them, and he wanted, from what I've read, and this isn't fact because, you know, you read it on the Internet, it's not necessarily true, Um, but from what I've read, he wanted to encourage them in tennis as a possible way to get them out of that lifestyle. So when they were very young, he began to watch videos on how to play tennis and take them out to their little neighborhood park court and start teaching them tennis. And he developed in them at a very young age a passion for tennis, which has continued. I believe that Serena won her first Grand Slam when she was 16 years old, and she just turned 37 and she and her sister Venus are two of the oldest, I think they are the two oldest women singles players at this level. Um, her, Serena's net worth is $200 million. We should have gone into tennis, shouldn't we? <laughs> so this week, I've been busy teaching school and getting ready for some conference I was supposed to go to. And... I have been recording the matches during the day, and then at night before bed, I kind of fast-forward through them and find the highlights and find my girls and watch them. And Serena will be playing in the championship tomorrow at 3 (laughs) o'clock. So if I'm not here, I actually have a look-alike who taught for me today, and she's going to fill in. Good deal, Dana? Dana? Seriously, I'm recording it. No worries. (laughs) I enjoy watching them, but Serena, at the age of 35, got married, took a year off of tennis, and had a baby. And somehow she managed to have this baby during the U.S. Open. I don't know if she paid her doctor to do her cesarean that week or what, but she had her baby that week. And ESPN felt the need to keep the world updated on the progress of her labor and delivery right in the middle of matches. Serena is now eight centimeters, you know. (laughs) So Serena had her baby, took a year off, and has now come back. And everything has been about Serena's comeback as a mom. Like that was the most amazing thing in the world, that this ambitious, competitive, successful tennis player found time in her world and in her life to actually become a mother. Sometimes she has a really bad attitude. She's just very competitive and she gets mad and bangs her racket and tells the ump off and all kinds of things like that. But I still enjoy watching her. Serena, the message of her life that I have picked up is do what you love and work hard to achieve it. If she wins tomorrow, it will be her 24th Grand Slam victory. She will tie the record currently held by Margaret Court, and I'm guessing that then she's going to want to win one more. Because I feel like part of her message is one more. She won her 101st U.S. Open match yesterday. And I look at her and I look at that message and I admire the strength and I admire the discipline and I admire the achievement. But I look at that message and I say, is that all it's about? And there are very popular motivational speakers today, including professing Christian ones, who have a very similar message. One popular motivational speaker who professes to be a believer has written several books, has a booming business, Million-dollar business, multi-million-dollar business. She's published several books, has a podcast, etc. And I just went through some of her materials and made a list of a few of her quotes that I would like for you to listen to tonight. Life is all about you and you doing everything you want to do because you are worth it. And don't let anybody tell you you can't. Take ownership of your life, your goals, and your dreams You are the hero of your story. You come first. You should be the very first of your priorities. You and only you are responsible for how happy you are. Life's about being happy. You fulfilling your dreams, becoming a better you. You have control of your life. And finally... All that really matters is how badly you want those dreams and what you're willing to do to make them happen. All of those quotes came from one person who professes to be a Christian. There are many others who write similar things. And my question for us tonight is how does that message, which is very much like the secular message of our culture's celebrities, such as Serena Williams, how does that message, how does that life purpose and that life ambition match up with what the Word of God says our life is to be about? Now, this author that I've been quoting, some of you know exactly who I'm talking about. And can I just say she's delightful? You read her books, and you laugh one minute, and you cry the next. And she actually says some good stuff. She says some things that are true and helpful. But underlying all of that, her message is, it's all about you, girl, and you go do it. And don't you let anybody or anything, don't you let being a wife or a mother or anything else stand in your way. I'd like for us to consider, we're not going to stay here, but I'd like for us to consider how that message lines up with the message of Paul throughout his epistles. We could find many to consider tonight, but let's look at Philippians 3. And in Philippians 3, Paul lays out all of his credentials. He describes his pedigree, his education, all of his accomplishments. And then he makes the statement starting in verse 7. But what things were gained to me, these I counted loss for Christ. What's he saying? All of this stuff that according to our society and our culture is gain, is accomplishment, is achievement, is success, I count it as loss. He goes on to call it rubbish or garbage. And he says in verse 8, yet indeed I count all things loss for what? What? For the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish, that I may win Christ. Verse 9, and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. Verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering, being conformed to his death. And then you skip down to verse 14, and Paul very clearly spells out his life ambition. I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Now, if you're like me, I look at the life of Paul, Paul, and I read things that Paul did and Paul said, and I want to say, yeah, but that's Paul, right? We can't all be like Paul. You know, I mean, Paul, one of the greatest apostles, author of so much of the New Testament, greatly used by God, and we want to look at that and we want to say, well, that was Paul's life. And I think I can kind of mix the two of these. I can pursue my earthly ambitions and I can be successful. I can fulfill my dreams and at the same time I can live for Jesus you know that's kind of what this author tries to do throughout her writing you will find pepperings of her faith but if you read it closely her references to faith and her references to god is more along the lines of i believe in god and because of my faith in god i know that one day god is going to allow me to fulfill my dreams so god is her genie in the bottle god is her helper in accomplishing these life ambitions. But back to Paul, back to our thinking, well, that was Paul, good old Paul. Look with me at verse 15. He finishes this passage that I've read excerpts from, and then he says in verse 15, therefore let us, as many as are mature, read the next three words. Uh Uh-oh. Have This mind. What mind? The mind he has just spent all the previous verses describing. The mind that says all of these earthly accomplishments are worth nothing in comparison to my pursuit of Christ and to fulfilling what he has called me to do. Look also at verse 17. Brethren, join in what? Oh man, he doesn't just say it once, right? He says, have the same mind that I have. And then he says, join me in following my example. What example? The example he has just spelled out for us. Paul's philosophy of life, Paul's worldview, Paul's ambitions stand in stark contrast obviously to that of our culture's celebrities. We expect that. But it also stands in stark contrast to many things that Christians or professing Christians are saying. And I want to challenge us tonight that we need to be reading and we need to be observing examples with great discernment. And we need to be asking, how does that person's message line up with this? Is it consistent? Is what they are pursuing actually what God is have calling me to pursue? Look with me, if you would, tonight in Ephesians chapter 1. I'd like us to spend our time together considering What does the Word of God say that is relevant to this discussion? I know what Paul said, but what about me and you personally? What does it say? In the book of Ephesians, we find a letter that Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus. Some believe this was actually a circular letter intended not necessarily for Ephesus, but for a group of churches. But Paul is imprisoned. Paul is about to face trial for his life. And he evidently had some last things he wanted to encourage the Christians about. And he writes this letter. And in the first three chapters, he describes for them the great blessings of the theology of what Christ has done for them and who they are in Christ. And then in the second three chapters, chapter four, chapters 4, 5, and 6, he lays out for them how, in light of the truths of that theology, they should live their lives. And tonight, we're just going to hang out in chapter 1, and we're going to look together at what God says about our identity And how we are to respond to that. What is the significance of that? We're actually going to do this in a little bit of a unique way. okay? We're going to work our way through the passage three times. The first time rather slowly. So don't get nervous that all three times are going to take this long. Rather slowly. And we're going to look at one thing. And then we're going to go back through two more times looking at something else. And then we're going to land the plane. Okay? All right. So look with me first. First of all, let's consider the reality of who you are. Hello. There we are. All right. The reality of who you are. Ephesians 1, and I'm going to read verses 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. This, This paragraph starts out with the statement, Blessed be God the Father. I just want to park there for just a second. This is a sentence form that we see often used in the Old Testament Psalter, in their hymns, in their psalms. And it's, it's, the, it's structured in a way, rather than saying, uh, Lord, you are blessed, or rather than saying, you need to bless God, it's a third-person statement that names God. Blessed be God, and then it goes on to say why. What God has done that he should be blessed. We see it in Psalm sixty-six twenty. 20. Blessed be God who has not rejected my prayer. Psalm 72, 18. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. You see there it says blessed be God and then it says one thing about God. This eventually became part of synagogue worship and it was called a baraka. If you speak Hebrew, I probably murdered that, but let's pretend I said it right, okay? And it's, uh, it's the Hebrew word that means blessing. And Paul is borrowing from that, and he uses it in Scripture several times. He uses it in 2 Corinthians 1, 3, and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who comforts us. So he names God in third person, and then he says why. Why is God blessed? Because he comforts us. 1 Peter 1.3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has begotten us again to a living hope. And each time, each example I've given you, it's blessed be God, it names God, and then it tells one thing about God. This is the structure that we have here in verse 3, but there's something unique about it. Look again with me at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with everything every spiritual blessing so in all these other examples one particular blessing is named and here I think Paul is overwhelmed with the magnitude of what he's going to say God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing and then he goes on to name those for us the word spiritual blessings is is in contrast I believe to material blessings now God blesses us with material blessing, also, right? But in this passage, Paul is spelling out spiritual blessings that God has blessed us with. He says, in heavenly places. This is interesting. This is a phrase that is used five times in this epistle, and it's not used anywhere else. In the Old Testament, God often blessed in visible ways. Okay, a man was considered blessed or not blessed based on how many cattle he had, how many sheep, how many goats, how much land. At that point in time, God is establishing his people. God is revealing who he is. And he often revealed himself to them and his blessing for their righteousness in material prosperity and blessing. We get to the New Testament, and it switches over more to spiritual blessings with the work of Jesus Christ, we are now opened up to spiritual blessings. In the heavenlies is what that actually says. So, so Paul is pointing out, we're not talking about your food and your clothing. We're talking about spiritual blessings in contrast to material and things that originated in the heavens and things that have to do with Jesus Christ who has died, resurrected, and ascended to heaven. So it's all the things up there that have to do with him that we now have access to because of the work of Jesus Christ, the finished work of Jesus Christ. These blessings that he's about to list form for us the reality of who we are. First of all, as you can see... He says that you and I are chosen, verse 4, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. That word there is talking about election. It's the idea of taking for oneself, selecting out of a group. It says that God chose us, Before the foundation of the world. What does that tell me? It tells me that you and I had nothing to do with being chosen. It's not something we earned. It's not something we deserved. God chose us of his own will. It goes on to say, in love he predestined us. That's verse 5. It's a little bit different sense there. It's the sense that he predetermined something for us. You know... I get muddy when I start trying to distinguish between election and predestination. So I'm going to tell you something that helps me. It's it's overly simplistic probably, but this helps me keep it straight in my mind. When we talk about election, we're talking about people, people being chosen, people being selected. When we talk about predestined, we're talking about it refers to a purpose, We're chosen and selected to something or for something. So this passage, this part is telling us that we're chosen. God selected us before we were ever born to be saved. And he didn't just choose us. He he predestined us to something. This verse tells us that he predestined us to adoption as sons. Let's talk about adoption for a minute. Adoption, as you know, is when you choose someone to be your child. You know, if you, if you have biological children, you got stuck with them. <laughs> you had no say in the matter. They came out and they were yours. And adoption adds this idea of someone selecting and choosing. That's a beautiful thought. There's another aspect to this adoption that we read about. You don't need to turn there, but we read about it in Galatians 4. And I'm still studying this. I've been trying to wrap my mind around it. But if you read Galatians 4, it starts out talking about how when you were children, you were under the elemental principles of the world and you had, you had a guardian over you, and then you were adopted to be sons of God. What does that mean? When a person is a baby, an infant, that word child is infant, they may be an heir, but they can't enjoy it. They don't really benefit from it, and they have somebody over them telling them what to do and not to do and controlling them, and not until they become an adult... An adult son, do they actually benefit from the inheritance? Do they actually get to enjoy it? And that's part of this idea of adopted. It's saying in Galatians 4 that he adopted us as adult sons, as adult children. What's the significance of that? That you and I right now have the opportunity to enjoy and experience some of that inheritance. Because he has adopted us. He's chosen us. He's chosen to make us his own. And he's chosen to make us adults to where we actually benefit from his inheritance. We're going to come back and talk more about that in a minute. But I want to talk about this idea of chosen. I want to illustrate it for you. Everything I'm going to say tonight, most of you have heard. And if I said to you, what? Does Ephesians 1 through 3 tell you about your identity? And you could rattle off stuff. I'm chosen, predestined, accepted. Uh, and you could keep going. I'm an heir. And you could come out with these. But I'd like to suggest tonight that we're familiar with these things, but they don't impact us like they should. And I think the reason for that is because. We we are not aware or we have lost our awareness of our desperate need for the work of Christ that this is describing. Remember grade school, going outside for recess and your teacher announces that you're going to play kickball. That ever happened to you? And she appoints two captains. And the captains start choosing who they want on their team. And they're typically going to choose either their friends or good athletes, right? If they're competitive, they want to choose the best people because they want to win. And the athlete who knows he's good at this, he's not really surprised when he's chosen. He actually has a sense that he deserves it because he knows he's good. And he knows he's going to benefit the team, On the other hand, those of you that are not, your spiritual gifts are not sports. (laughs) You're more fine artsy or you knit. (laughs) And you can't kick the ball or catch it or throw it. You know who you are. And you have no expectation of being chosen because you realize how desperately inadequate you are at kickball. And when that captain chooses you, you are filled with gratitude that you're not the last man standing (laughs) who just gets divided up. Do you remember that happening? Okay, to her left, you go there, you go there. And I think that illustrates for us our lack of appreciation for these truths. If we're not aware of our desperate need for the work of Jesus Christ, our desperate need to be chosen, to be adopted, then we don't really appreciate it. But when we are aware of who we really are, we're filled with awe and wonder that he chose us in his sovereign mercy. Illustrate it one more way. I am using haha. See this cute guy? Quite a few years ago, more years ago than I want to tell you, this young man... Called me in my dorm room at Bob Jones University after a series of events and asked me to go out to dinner with him. And he was what I call a B-mock. He was a big man on campus. And I just thought he was adorable. And I remember from that day forward, my keen awareness. He chose me. He chose me. And as the years go on, and there have been times when I have struggled in my flesh or exhaustion or four kids in five and a half years or menopause or whatever excuse I want to give you, when I have struggled to love him as I should and to give of myself to him as I should, that thought has stayed with me. He chose me. And I am filled with gratitude to this day that he chose me. Does that help us understand as we go through these, I know you know them. But when, when Paul says that God has blessed be God, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies, Paul is overwhelmed. Paul is communing something, communicating something magnificent. And you and I as the recipients of that message, as we're reminded of these truths, we should respond in awe and gratitude that He chose us. Let's look at the next one. We find it in verse 7. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of His grace. Not only are you chosen, but you are redeemed. He goes on to explain what this redemption is. If you look in the next phrase, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. So he uses the concept of of redemption, the ransoming of a slave, to help us understand what the shedding of Jesus Christ accomplished for us. Redemption means paying the required ransom for the release of a person from bondage. Romans 6:20 describes us before Christ as slaves of sin. We have a hard time really wrapping our minds around that in our culture today. But we were captive. We were held captive. We were in chains. We could not get away. We could not escape. From this bondage to sin. And he tells us what the ransom money was. Look again at verse 7. In him we have redemption. What was the ransom money? Through his blood. It was the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And because of that we were set free from the bondage of sin. Following the Emancipation Proclamation and the end of the Civil War there were many freed slaves who faced many difficulties. Congress implemented the reconstruction to help reorganize the South and also to help whites and blacks learn to live in society together. And the freed slaves went through a long, hard process of establishing themselves. Most of them could not read or write. They had no education. Amendments were passed to give them rights. They were able to vote. Um, But many of them worked hard to get an education, to acquire land, to obtain employment. And this thought, this, this illustration I'm sharing leads us into the next point. That not only did God redeem us and free us from slavery, but He didn't leave us stranded as as freed slaves in poverty with nothing. This passage goes on to tell us that He made us heirs. You are an heir. Look at verse 11. In Him also we have obtained an inheritance being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. We have obtained an inheritance. Now some of you may have a translation that actually says something along the lines as we became his inheritance or he claimed us as a portion. And that's because I guess this verb can be, uh, the form of this verb could be interpreted either way. Can I just say that both of those are true? When God chose us and made us sons, He claimed us as His own possession. But He also tells us in Scripture that He made us joint heirs with Jesus Christ. So both of these are true. We have obtained an inheritance. He has given us His spiritual riches. I mentioned a minute ago that we'd come back to the idea of our inheritance... This is one of the already but not yet truths of Scripture. Do you know that idea, that phrase? It's the idea that as believers, there are things that we experience and enjoy now, but we're not completely there, right? We're holy in God's sight, but we're going to be completely holy when we get the glorified body. We're heirs of Jesus Christ but we're going to inherit more when we get to heaven. Let me, let me illustrate this further. In the epistle of Ephesians, to the Ephesians, the word riches occurs five times. Paul keeps talking about our riches, and he uses this term in other epistles as well. And he's telling us what the inheritance is that we're actually enjoying right now. In Ephesians 1.7 and 2.7, he talks about the riches of his grace. In Romans 2.4, he talks about the riches of his kindness. In Colossians 1.27, Ephesians 3.16, Philippians 4.19, he talks about the riches of glory. In Colossians 2.7, he talks about the riches of the fullness of understanding. In Ephesians 3.8, he talks about our riches in Christ, our riches of Christ. So these are riches that you and I are enjoying at least to some degree right now. As a believer who has recognized your desperate need for Jesus Christ and placed your faith in Him, you have already begun to experience His grace. You have already begun to experience His kindness. You have already begun to experience His glory, and you have a measure of His understanding that He is giving you. But we learn in Scripture that there's more to come. 1 Peter 1, 3, and 4 says that God has begotten us again to a living hope to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. There's something more coming that we can look forward to. Have you heard the illustration of the woman who was about to die, and she asked that she be buried with a fork in her coffin? Have you heard that story? I might not get it exactly right, but it popped in my mind as sweat drips down my neck. Um, she wanted, to, she wanted, at her viewing and her visitation, she wanted to have a fork in her hand. And I guess her family's like, what in the world? And it was the idea that at the end of a meal, when your hostess clears the table and says, keep your fork, that you know that the best part is yet to come. <laughs> Dessert's coming, Right? And and ladies, you are experiencing some of the riches, some of the inheritance of Jesus Christ right now, but we're taught in Scripture that the best is yet to come. There is more to come. A part of this inheritance is the fact that we are sealed. We see that in verse 13. It says that we are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. This is the same word that's used in Matthew 27 to talk about Jesus' tomb being sealed They sealed the tomb so that it could not be opened and he could not be taken out. Romans 15, 28, the same word is used in reference to an offering, a contribution that was taken up by the churches and it was sealed to be taken to its destination. It was wrapped up and protected so nothing could happen to it. And this passage is saying that as heirs of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit has sealed you. Nothing can break apart that relationship. Nothing can take that away from you. And it also is the idea that the Holy Spirit, as the Word of God says, dwells within me. And His presence there is a seal, as this verse says, is a guarantee of the promise. When I am convicted of sin and I have this knot in my stomach, I know I'm a Christian because the Holy Spirit is doing His work. When I am reading the word of God and I am struggling and I can't understand it and suddenly there is enlightenment, that is the Holy Spirit, that is evidence of the Holy Spirit in my life illuminating my mind. And this verse is saying this this bond with Jesus Christ can never be broken. Nobody can take it away from you and you don't have to doubt and question it because you have his presence in you as a guarantee That you belong to Jesus Christ, that you are an heir of Him. These are wonderful, encouraging truths. And I promise that was the long part. (laughs) Many of you here tonight are wounded, you have been abused, you have been abandoned, you have been bereaved. And you hurt. You are in great grief. And you're thinking life is not turning out to be what I signed up for. And ladies, whatever this sin-cursed world has brought your way, these truths are here to encourage you. This is who you are. Whatever that thing is, whatever that situation, that circumstance, that pain, that wound, that scar, that is not your identity. Because God says here that you are chosen, you are adopted, you are accepted in the beloved, you are an heir, you are his. Many of you have used these in counseling Somebody comes to you and they're struggling with with guilt or shame and they're struggling with the past. And You say, let's talk about your identity in Christ. And that is such an encouraging study. Embrace these truths. Appreciate them. But may I challenge us tonight, don't stop there. Can I say that as wonderful as those truths are, that is not the main point of this passage. This passage is not about you. Shooks. <laughs> Let me show you what I mean. Your next point on your outline speaks of the source of who you are. The first first one is in him second one is by Jesus Christ. The third one is with the Holy Spirit. What I've done is I've gone back through the passage and I've found all of the times that the source of these wonderful truths is mentioned. In all of those verses I have listed there, we find in Him, speaking of Jesus Christ, we find by Jesus Christ in verse 5 and then as we just spoke about in verse 13, with the Holy Spirit. This passage is exalting God the Father, Jesus Christ the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You can actually divide those three things, the chosen, the redeemed, and the heir. If you go back and look through them, the chosen part is referring to God the Father. He's the one who chose you. He's the one who predestined you. Jesus Christ through his blood is the one who redeemed you and the Holy Spirit is the one who seals you as an heir. You can also look at it as the first part when I was chosen and predestined. That is what God has done for me in the past. Redeemed is the present work of Jesus Christ and the the completeness of being an heir is the future. Isn't that cool? How you can divide this passage up in these different ways. But all of it is not exalting you. It's not so that you feel good about yourself and go get them, girl. It's about Him and what He did for us. So when we just focus on who we are in Christ, we are falling short of communicating everything that this passage says to us. He is the source of everything He has done. So when I rejoice... I rejoice in him and what he has done. The next part that helps us further flesh this out. Oh, now what did I do? (laughs) Aha. Okay, we're going to look at the purpose for who you are. We're going to trace through it one more time. And we see in verse 4. A purpose is mentioned. Whenever you're reading along in Scripture and you're reading what Jesus did or you're reading what God's telling you to do and you see the word that or you see the word for, it's giving you a purpose statement. It's giving you a why. So why did God choose us? Why did He predestine us? Look at the end of verse 4. That we should be holy and without blame before Him. That was the immediate purpose of God choosing you and predestining you to adoption. He wanted to make you holy and without blame. As we go further, we see an an end result. Look in verse 10. He's continuing to describe everything he's done. And he says that in the dispensation that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth. So we have that immediate result of making me holy and without blame. Then we have an end result, something that hasn't happened together yet, where God is going to gather us all together. What's that talking about? It sounds like the rapture or the second coming or something, doesn't it? But let's talk about it. At the fall, sin entered into the world and separated man from God. This led to man being separated from man, the sin of Cain and Abel. We we trace on through Genesis. We find man trying to unify himself at the Tower of Babel. And we find God judging them and dispersing them, scattering them again. We trace through all of this and we continue to see that sin has been and continues to tear this world apart. But the day is going to come because of Christ, because of the finished work of Christ, that God is going to gather it all back together and put it back the way he originally intended it to be. So there's two purposes. But even both of these lead to this next one, which I think is the overarching purpose of all of this. The overarching purpose of me being chosen, predestined, adopted, forgiven, redeemed, made an heir. The overarching purpose... Of him making me holy and without blame. The overarching purpose of his one day gathering it all back together again. Look with me in verse 6. Read it to yourself. Then look in verse 12. Then look in verse 14. Verse 6, verse 12, verse 14. What do you see? to the praise of his glory. That is that is a thread that runs through this chapter that we need to not miss. Verse 6, to the praise of the glory of his grace. Verse 12, that we who first trusted in him should be to the praise of his glory. Verse 14. "...who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession... "...to the praise of His glory." Let's talk about that phrase. The word praise is to bring applause. The word glory, we could trace this through the Bible. We could see a little nuance of meaning in the Old Testament uh, from the New Testament. But I'm going to bring it all together and simply call it the radiance of who He is. So the phrase, to the praise of His glory means to bring radiant applause to who He is. So why did God choose you? Why did God predestine you, adopt you, accept you, etc.? To bring Him radiant applause. to, To highlight who He is, His character, the name of God. We see this illustrated back in Exodus 33... Moses is discouraged. God said, I'm not going with you. You know, y'all blew it. And Moses says, God, please, I don't want to go without you. And then he goes on to say, God, show me your glory. You are, most of you know this story. God says, okay, it's more than you can handle. So you're going to get behind that rock, and I'm going to pass by, and I'm going to let you look at my hinder parts, my backside. Because the front, my full glory would be too much for you to handle. And as I pass by, I am going to proclaim my name. You see two things there. You see the radiance and you see the proclamation of his name, who he is. That's what we're talking about. And as God passed by and there was a radiant light, God proclaimed to Moses who he was. He said, the Lord... The Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering, abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. The ambition of my life should be to bring applause to God for who He is. It should be for me to cause other people to do the same. And any other ambition that I have should facilitate that priority. Yeah, you might have to work and make money, but that's not your ambition. You might play tennis and be good at it, but your life ambition is not to be the best tennis player. Whatever skills God has equipped you with, yes, he's given you those, you use those, but have a bigger picture... Say, I'm going to do this looking and praying for opportunities to make God big, to radiate and draw applause to who he is. And that should be, as it was for Paul, the priority of all of our lives. What does this look like in my life, quickly? We glorify God through our faith. We find this in Romans 4.20 where it talks about Abraham And how Abraham did not waver at the promise of God in unbelief but was strengthened in faith. And it goes on to say, giving glory to God. He glorified God through his faith. And when I place my faith in Jesus Christ for salvation, that glorifies God according to this verse. And when I live my daily life and I respond to the messiness of my life in faith clinging to who God is that glorifies him as I exercise faith next we glorify God through worship psalm 50:23 says whoever offers praise glorifies me wow whoever offers praise glorifies me can i clarify that i don't mean going through the motions of corporate worship this is something that i struggle with my whole life i'm just distracted I notice what you have on. I notice who you're sitting with. I notice what the harmony behind me sounds like. And I, I can go through external motions and I can sing the song and I can fail to glorify God because I'm not truly worshiping in spirit and in truth. And ladies, that's a danger for us because we know what to, how to look and we know what to say. But what's going on in my heart? Am I truly seeking to glorify Him? Next, we glorify God through our conduct. Jesus defined glorifying God in John 17, 4 as doing the work that the Father had given him. 1 Peter 4, 10 defines glorifying God as, as we're ministering in the church, it says that in all things God may be glorified. Our tendency, I'm afraid, is to do a lot of good things and to do it with wrong motivation. I am so aware of selfish ambition in my own heart. And if I don't make a conscious effort in all of the good deeds that I try to do, in all of the ministry, I know that I am not glorifying God. And it's not a one-time thing. God, I give you my life and help me glorify you. It's like a moment-by-moment stinking battle. And I can say, okay, Lord, I'm getting ready to get up and sing a solo. Please help me glorify you. And in the middle of the solo, I realize... That I'm thinking about something completely different. Like what you think of me. And I have failed to glorify God in that. First Corinthians 10.31 Whether therefore you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. May I suggest tonight, and we're going to wrap it up. No activity is automatically glorifying to God. No activity is is automatically glorifying to God, no matter how good it looks. In and of itself, the work does not glorify God. It's all about my intent, my heart, my motivation. At the same time, every legitimate activity can glorify God. Can that encourage you, young mom, so you feel like all you do is clean bottoms and wash bottles and chase kids? And fold the same clothes. I know that feeling. And it gets so discouraging and you feel unfulfilled. Can I challenge you that you can glorify God in that just as much as I can right now doing this? Because it's all about recognizing, God, this is the task you've given me to do. I want to do it for your glory, through your strength. Does it sound difficult? I'm not trying to be discouraging. I'm trying to actually say it really just boils down to desire. Conscious desire. Lord, help me glorify you right now. God's been working in my heart in this area, and I pray that lots and lots of times. I remember as a pastor's wife, the phone would ring, and I didn't have caller ID then, and I had no idea who it was. And I just got in the habit of praying on the way to the phone. Lord, help me glorify you through this. Help me glorify you. Some questions we can ask in a situation. How do I think about this in a way that will glorify God? God. What, what what should I say about this that'll glorify God? How should I act in response to this in a way that'll glorify God? How can I make God big right now? How can I lift him up? How can I represent him well? How can I reflect him accurately? I've given you a, a second handout. There's just some practical things for you to think through along this line. But but can I close tonight by asking a question? What are you living for? And I know the pat answer is, I'm living for Jesus. But can I tell you, that doesn't happen automatically. What are your ambitions? What are you trying to accomplish? Are you being impacted and influenced by these secular sources and even professing Christian sources that are not consistent with what the Word of God says? Or are you listening to Paul when he says, have the same mind I do. Have this be your life ambition. And will you say with me tonight, God, teach me how to glorify you. Help that to be a focus of my heart and my mind. Help me day by day, moment by moment, to make that conscious choice to say, Lord, help me glorify you in this this menial task or this seemingly mammoth task that I'm about to undertake. Let's close in prayer. God, sometimes we want what the world has. We are influenced by their ambition and their goals. Drive us to your word. Do your work in our hearts. Help us to be passionate about glorifying you. In every moment of every day, teach us how to do that. Teach us what it means. Continue to work in our hearts. In your name, amen.